Welcome to Walking It Out, living the Bible in everyday real life. Hey there, I'm Pastor Brad. You know, I've been reading lately through Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians. I love the story of how this ministry in this church and the work there in this city began. You know, the story is told primarily in the book of Acts. We see in Acts 17 an interesting story of how ministry began there. You know, as the story is told, Paul is making his way to Thessalonica and he's bypassing some other towns. He's bypassing uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia. And as was his custom when he made his way into this really thriving metropolis, into this thriving city, he made his way straight for the synagogue. I mean, he would have spent the weekdays working, but for three straight Sabbath days, he made his way to the synagogue in the middle of town. And the scripture says that he spent his time there reasoning, not about the scriptures, but he spent his time reasoning from the scriptures. He was explaining and proving what? That it was necessary for Jesus to come, suffer, die, and rise from the dead. I mean, Paul made his way to the middle of this town, a relative stranger, and was just preaching the gospel, that Jesus was the Christ. And he had an awesome response here. You look at this scripture and it says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did what? A great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So he had this awesome response amongst these Greeks from these leading women here in Thessalonica. But let me tell you who didn't have a good response to it. It says the Jews. And probably this is referring to the Jewish religious leaders. And why didn't it have a good response? Because they weren't receptive to the gospel. They were jealous of the response that Paul had received. And so what did they do? They gathered together local thugs in a mob to go and raise an upheaval in the city against Paul. They manufactured outrage against Paul and the brothers. And they, as the scripture says, converged converged on a man named Jason's house. We don't know a lot about Jason. You know, he likely was a Jew. I mean, his name was a name that was often taken by diaspora Jews, but maybe he was a, a, a guy who shared the same trade in the work as Paul. Probably was a convert who may have possibly housed this brand new church, but but nevertheless, they couldn't find Paul and the brothers, so they man they manhandled Jason and the others and brought him before these politarchs, brought him before these city and governing authorities and leveled all kind of accusations against him. And here's the part that I that's on my mind as I come to you with this podcast. Listen to the accusations that they level against Jason, against Paul, against uh these brothers who came to this town. It says in verse 6 and 7 of Acts chapter 17, And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have, I love this, listen to this, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So look at the accusations that they throw at Jason's feet and that they throw against Paul. First, they they essentially accuse Paul and Silas of being troublemakers, which really, when you look at the facts of what happened here, it's really not true. There really wasn't any trouble 
from Paul and Silas, there was no trouble at all. There wasn't any trouble, matter of fact, until the Jewish leaders and their gang and their mob decided to to create unrest. So the accusation, the irony here is that the trouble that got stirred up was stirred up by the Jews. So that's false. Second, they condemned Jason for harboring and for housing these Paul and, and this uh, the brothers, and that's true. Third, they were accused of what? Defying Caesar's decrees by preaching that Jesus was king. And that really was untrue. It was strategic. You know, rebelling against Caesar would have been considered treason and it would have got you into serious trouble. And so these politarchs, you know, what did they do? What did these governing authorities do? They banned Paul and Silas from the city and they took a security deposit, for a lack of a better way to explain it, from Jason so that if he ever housed Paul again, if he ever housed them again, that, that he would forfeit that deposit. I think this was probably the, the ban that Paul was referring to in 1 Thessalonians 2 when he referred to being stopped from coming to this church due to what he called a hindrance from Satan. But I love it. Here's the part that's on my mind. The part that sticks out to me in Acts 17 is that Paul was accused and, and actually was guilty of what? Turning the world upside down, kind of. Was Paul really guilty of turning the world upside down? I guess it depends on whatever perspective you're looking through. If you're looking through the world's perspective, if you're looking through these Jewish leaders' perspective, if you're looking through people who do not know Jesus Christ, their perspective, Paul absolutely 100% was guilty of turning the world upside down. If you're looking from God's perspective, as James Boyce makes the case, Paul wasn't really turning the world upside down. Paul was just trying to turn an already upside-down world right side up. He was guilty of both. And here's what I think. I think a lot of us would say we want that. The reason why that jumps off the page to me and it ought to jump off the page to you is because I think this is what our calling is. Our world is twisted. Our world is dark. We live in the midst of, as Philippians 2 said, a crooked and twisted generation. And we ought to, as Paul said to the church at Philippi, shine as lights in the world, Philippians 2.15. And we want that. I think if you were to ask any real follower of Jesus Christ who knows him as Lord and Savior, there ought to be a part of our heartbeat, a part of our motivation, a part of our compulsion that says, yes, the world's upside down and our mission, our co-mission is to turn it right side up for Jesus Christ. I think a lot of us don't know how to do that. I think a lot of us would look at our life and say, I don't don't see that happening though. I love it. John Piper in probably one of his, probably, most famous sermon that he's ever preached was Passion 2000, he, he preached what we all call the, the famous seashell sermon. And he said this, You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ. And you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. 
which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference because it isn't you, it is what you are gripped with. How did Paul do this? What made Paul a world changer? Whether that changing the world is turning it upside down or turning it right side up. I love it. Warren Wiersbe says, even from this passage of scripture, we can kind of see some of those things. He mentioned several of them and strung them together. What did Paul do here in Thessalonica that caused these Jewish leaders to think he was turning the world upside down? Well, first of all, he simply what? Let me use the words from this passage. He reasoned, explained, proved, and proclaimed from the scriptures about Jesus Christ. And you know what that means? It, it means he simply went out into the town where people were and took advantage of the opportunity and he dialogued with them, had conversations with them, he answered their questions, he engaged. And he engaged, and this is the point, persuasively and authoritatively through the scripture about Christ's death and resurrection. He didn't ignore them. He went to them. And let me tell you something. In order to reason from the scriptures, you need to have knowledge of the scripture. Prideful ignorance won't change the world for Jesus Christ. Prideful ignorance is not persuasive. It's foolish. Paul told us, and he's showing us here, even as he came to Thessalonica, what it looks like to be ready like he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 5. Paul says, preach the word. You want to turn the world upside down? Look at verse 2 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. Preach the word. And here comes two big words that we need to understand right now. Be ready. Be ready. Preach the word. Be ready. In season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. When Paul had the opportunity, let me tell you what he was. He was prepared and he was ready. He was expecting world-changing work. If you want to turn the world right side up for Christ, it's not going to happen by being apathetic, lazy, and it certainly isn't going to be happening by being ignorant of the Word of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul gives these abrupt, they really are abrupt commands to Timothy to be ready to preach. It was ab abrupt, not out of ugliness, it was an abrupt command because of the fact that this was and is urgent business. There's no time to waste. People's lives were at stake as to whether we followers of Christ and whether they followers of Christ were ready and able to preach the word and the knowledge of Christ Jesus that they had. If you and I and we are going to have any chance to live God's word, to do God's word, to obey God's word, we must make ourselves available to God's word and know it. To know it. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, listen to this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through what? Listen to this. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. I love it. Again, Piper says this, John Piper. Literally, all the power available from God to live and be godly comes through, listen to this, knowledge. It's amazing. What a premium we should put on doctrine and instruction in the scriptures. Life and godliness are at stake. And not that knowing guarantees godliness, it doesn't, but it seems that ignorance guarantees ungodliness, John would say. Because 
Peter says the divine power that leads to godliness is given through the knowledge of God. And let me tell you what, it's not so much about knowing Scripture and passing a Bible quiz. The point of knowing Scripture so that we can reason from it is more so about knowing Jesus. The Word is the definitive witness of Jesus, who is the Word of God made flesh, like John 1.14 says. I mean, Jesus told us in John 5, 39 through 40, he, he, he told us, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that what? Bear witness about me. Think about the road to Emmaus in, in Luke 24, verse 20, 27, speaking to Cleopas. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, Jesus, that in all the scriptures, the things that concerned himself, the scriptures, the point of knowing scripture and reasoning from the scripture is to do as Paul did, is to point people to the truth of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what are the implications of this passage of scripture and this, this model that we see from Paul about turning the world upside down? Well, let me tell you a couple simple ones. We ought to be people who read the Word, know the Word, abide in the Word, think the Word, discuss the Word, interact with the Word, study the Word, know the Word, live the Word, we ought to, as Paul said, be ready. Know Christ, know His Word, transform your mind. You can't turn the world upside down if you don't know Jesus in an intimate, passionate way. Now let me end with this. What I think is so fascinating about this passage of Scripture in Acts 17 is that we spend a lot of time talking about what Paul did there once he made it to the synagogue. You know, we look at him going to the synagogue there and, and we spend a lot of time talking about how he expounded from the scriptures and he explained and proved uh, and, and proclaimed the word. But I actually think we miss a really important part of his world-changing uh, example here. And I think it's at the beginning of verse 2. And it's two little words that I think we pass over so often. None of those things, the explaining, the proving, and the proclaiming of God's word could have been possible if Paul didn't do what he did at the beginning of verse 2. And it says, and Paul went in. Paul went. Paul could know the scriptures. He could know Jesus. But unless he gets off of his first century couch, so to speak, unless he has a strategy, unless he actually engages and goes... None of the explaining is going to matter because there will be nobody to explain to and nobody to prove to. Paul went. It was his custom. Maybe it was his day off from tent making. I don't think there really was days off for Paul, but let me tell you what he did. He got out there. He went looking for opportunity. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always, 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 off days, on days, feel good, you feel bad, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I think in this verse, 1 Peter 3.15, we see the motivation behind our Bible study and our preparation. And I think we see our motivation and our compulsion that ought to compel us to go into all the world to do this. And it's the first half of that verse. What ought to cause us to want to be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have in Him? It's because our hearts, our hearts honor Christ the Lord 
as holy. I love it. Evangelist Glenn Scrivener says this, What grips the heart wags the tongue. Or to put it the way Jesus does, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34. We speak out what we are full of. This is an inescapable fact of human psychology. We are always evangelizing. We are always speaking of what is holy to us. If something is sacred, set apart, consecrated, of first importance, it will overflow from our hearts and into our conversation. So Peter counsels us to what? Fill our hearts with Christ the Lord. That's what we're doing. We're not trying to so much fill our minds with Bible facts. But when we understand Scripture is the definitive witness of Jesus. We are, through Scripture, increasing our faith in Christ Jesus. We are, we are increasing our intimacy with Christ Jesus. We are more and more and more displaying that He is the treasure of our heart. Let me tell you what, it's hard to make the world right side up or turn anything upside down when you do nothing. I think so sadly if many Christians and followers of Christ were accused of anything, if they were brought before the governing authorities at best, they'd be accused of doing nothing. I don't think they would have even brought, been brought before the governing authorities. I think Paul's going implied that he cared. Let me end with this. Let me ask you a simple question. You know, today you'll have 24 hours. Why did you do what you did today? I mean, there were some things that you did and some things that you didn't do. Why did you do the things that you did and not do the things that you didn't do? You know, I'm convinced there's two reasons why we do the things we do and don't do the things we do. I think most of the stuff that we do, we do because, one, it's probably necessary. When we brush our teeth, we eat our food, we, we sleep. Why? Maybe not because we love to. Even go into our jobs. Maybe there's a lot of people who wake up and they think, well, I don't, I don't love my work, but I'm going to go do this because it's necessary. I got to get paid. I got to I got to eat because it keeps me alive. I think secondarily there are things that people do not because they're necessary but because they have a passion for it, because they have an affection for it, because they love it. Well, let me tell you what, Jesus falls into both of those categories. I think Paul showed us that he went because it was necessary. People's lives were at stake. There was nothing more important than this, but also more so because of his passion for Jesus. His passion for the word and he couldn't contain it. Jesus is our heart's treasure. And from the overflow of that heart should come a, a transformation in our speech, a transformation in our deeds where people see Jesus. Friends, let me ask you today as I end this podcast, if, if people had to accuse you of something, they would look at your life and accuse you, what would they accuse you of? blending in with the world, or turning it right side up. Friends, I hope you have an awesome, awesome day. And I hope you tune in again as we unpack God's Word for our real life.